Join me in Genesis chapter 27, and as you're turning there, uh, please be praying for Chris and Marla, Abigail and Whitley. Uh, Chris will be uh, starting the office on Tuesday, and we will introduce him to the joys of staff meeting. And he'll start that way, and then he'll have the super-duper joy of going uh, to lunch with staff. That's always fun. And um, if I have it my way, we'll either go to Kelly's Jerk Chicken or Weaver D's. Weaver D's, okay, that's what we'll do, all right. And um, uh, so pray for him. Uh, now the girls have got to finish school in Nashville. They're selling a home. They're looking for one here, so please be praying for them and ask uh, God to uh, help them and direct them, all right? But he'll start here Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, not this Sunday, but the following, all right? Second thing is, uh, one of the biggest things we do during the year, neatest things too, is Vacation Bible School. And everyone loves Vacation Bible School, right? They do. And so uh, we want you to sign up. A lot of our folks uh, actually take a week off of work. They take vacation time to do that. And uh, they, they really pour themselves into it. And uh, it shows. They've done a marvelous job with that. We win a lot of kids to the Lord and uh, really make an impact on the community. And uh, we'd like for you to sign up as a worker. Go online and do so uh, at our website. There are links there. And we would love for you to do that, okay? Genesis chapter 27 reminds me of the great disappointment you and I have felt through the years when we discovered that our children discovered our secret Oreo hiding place. Do you remember the disappointment and devastation that came with uh, going and looking and expecting Oreo cookies and your mouth would salivate just knowing what it would be like to uh, enjoy one and you there, you look, and they didn't even have the decency to throw away the package. They left it there to taunt you. They, they left it there to mock you, okay? And, uh, they, they, you know, there's a few crumbs left. There's not even one cookie left. They ate them all. Your Oreos are gone. And if it's not happened to you yet, your day is coming. A great day of disappointment because the Oreos have gone and kids have found them. Now, uh, my secret Oreo hiding place was discovered, and so I put it into my closet. And it was great until my wife discovered it, all right? So uh, that's uh, devastation and disappointment. It's not the worst thing in the world that can happen, but just imagine that sense and that uh, sensation going through your heart and soul, and um, it, it, it's a hundred or thousand times worse because your birthright has been taken and your blessing has been taken. Now, birthrights and blessings are not really something we are familiar with in this egalitarian society where everybody's supposed to be equal and the same. And that's a great thing about the United States, the genius of it. Our concept of equality is unparalleled in the world. We still have some struggles and need to fix some things. But the truth is, is that um, we're miles ahead of the rest of the world, okay? But uh, with that, uh, you have to understand ancient cultures were not that way, especially when it came to the firstborn child. Firstborn child had a birthright and a blessing coming to him, a birthright to the blessing. And um, Esau discovered that his younger brother, who was younger by just a few moments, they were twins, had taken his blessing from his father, and he is terribly devastated. What you have here in Genesis chapter 27 is, is, can be somewhat embarrassing to read 
It's not salacious. It's not sensual. It's nothing like that. It's not the kind of text I've got to warn parents about that I'm preaching on Sunday so they can alert their kids and maybe put them in children's worship or something. And I do that with every passage and topic like that. I let them know so they can make the decision. I'm not the parent of the child. I'm just the pastor. But um, what I do is uh, I, I alert them that that's coming. This is not that kind of passage. But the behavior between Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau is devastating. These are the people who are supposed to carry on the mission of God in the world and to be responsible for bringing the Messiah in the world. How in the world are they going to fix the world when they themselves need fixing? And this is what you've got in Genesis 27. The things that they do to one another are heartrending and heartbreaking. They are on mission for God. They are mission-minded people, and they engage in malicious maneuvers with one another. And that's what takes place in this text, and it's heartrending and heartbreaking. And I want to examine the text, and then I want to give you three principles from it, three applications from it. Uh, and I want to look at each character separately. One is Isaac, and Isaac is declining. Isaac is declining, beginning in chapter 27 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. Then he said, Behold now, I'm old and I do not know the day of my death. Now therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And make me savory food such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. Back in, um, back, uh, in uh, Rebekah's pregnancy, in chapter 25, verses 22 and 23, the, the boys were tussling with each other in utero. There was a battle. And Isaac prayed and asked God, what's going on? And the Lord spoke and spoke to Rebekah and said, there are two nations, two peoples in you. So what you have is that you have a warlike relationship from the womb between these two boys. And God announces in that, the older shall serve the younger. And that's often what happens. Esau, the older, was to serve Jacob, the younger. And they didn't stop there. Reuben, the older of Jacob, was to serve Judah, Jacob's fourthborn. And that's not unusual throughout the scripture. It's not usually the firstborn in the Old Testament that ends up being the preeminent one like the rest of the culture. David was above all of his brothers. You really don't get the prominence of the firstborn until you get to Jesus in the New Testament. But that was customary in that day, and God reversed it and announced to the family that Esau is going to serve and be under the mastery of Jacob, and it's through Jacob that the blessing is going to come. And what does Isaac do? Isaac demonstrates that he is declining in many ways. He's, um, uh, he's, declining, in, um, uh, he's declining in his mission. He neglected his mission. He was supposed, supposed to pass the blessing on to Jacob. Now, you need to understand the blessing had a lot of implications had spiritual implications. Um, the father could announce a blessing on the child and supercharge a spiritual life and walk with God. And, and uh, the good news is that's what God the Father does with us. 
That's what God, now it's an important thing for dads to bless their children. It's even more important for God the Father to bless us in Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Um, the blessing also had social implications. It elevated the one that was blessed in front of everyone, and that person was the recognized leader in the community over that family. And then it had family implications. Uh, the one blessed would rule the roost in the extended family, and the mother would even be submissive. That's why Jesus on the cross looks at John and says, Son, behold your mother, and then mother, behold your son. He transferred convalescent care to John, and as the head of the household made that decision. And so the one that was blessed would become the head of the household. So it had all kinds of implications, and Isaac is disobeying God at this point. At the end of his days, he begins to slip and backslide on God. But that's not all. He also misled his son. Esau should have been aware of this, and now he's giving Esau a false hope that he's going to enjoy the blessing. So he's misleading his son. So his parenting... His fatherhood is seriously, seriously compromised. But that's not all. He emphasized his flesh. He admits, I don't know when I'm going to die. Apparently my day is soon, and you would bless right before death. And, and what does he have on his mind? A meal. Really? That's the best you can do? It's not like you've ever done that before. You've had plenty of meals through your life. Why are you thinking of food at a time like this? Well, that's what Isaac is doing. He is declining spiritually to where he gets into the flesh. And then, that's not all. He provoked his wife. This is a time of life where they ought to be happy with one another. But because of his decision, he has set his older wife into action to act in a way that is contrary to his foolish decision-making. There ought to be peace there. Let me tell you something. You ought not ever upset your wife, especially when you're old and certainly not when you're young or any time in between. She can get you. All right? Well, this is what Isaac is doing. He's too mature for this. Or is he? That's what Isaac ends up doing. God's servants on mission with him can decline into carnality and throw their family into chaos. And that's what he does. Dr. Criswell was asked one time by a friend of mine that's coming to preach uh, here in September. He was on staff with Dr. Criswell, and he asked him, Dr. Criswell, what's the best preacher you ever heard? He said, the best preacher I ever heard was J. Frank Norris. Some of you will recognize the name. J. Frank Norris was a pastor of First Baptist Fort Worth, ran about 6,000 uh, uh, starting sometime in the 20s into the 50s. In fact, he pastored two churches, one in Fort Worth and one in Detroit, and would go back and forth between the two. And he had a paper. He was editor of the Baptist Standard. Uh, he got angry. He wasn't chosen as president at Southwestern, we think, and he uh, uh, really began to rail against Southern Baptists and would publicly name people and accuse them of uh, scandal publicly from the pulpit uh, and a variety of other things as well. Uh, Dr. Patterson said that his father, T.A. Patterson, was on the platform with J. Frank Norris many times in the 50s before Norris passed away. And Norris would lead these crusades and walk out the side door to get in the back seat of a limousine with some very, very shady Fort Worth characters and some who were not the most morally upright, to put it lightly. Uh, Dr. Patterson used to use that as an illustration 
of failing and falling at the end of life, which happens a lot. But Dr. Criswell was asked that question, who's the best preacher you ever heard in your life? And he said, J. Frank Norris, and he's in hell. That might be a little too hard of an evaluation. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know the man's soul. He caused people so much trouble on one hand and built up a powerful missionary evangelistic church on the other. I don't know. My church history professor said he thought that he was probably bipolar. He went to hear him preach and listened to him a lot and was familiar with him much more than the rest of us were. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. Dr. Criswell, however, was not the kind of person to make those statements real lightly. There was enough in J. Frank Norris's life at the end of his life to cause Dr. Criswell to wonder about the man's salvation. So I don't know, but I know Dr. Criswell was worried. He was worried. Friends, what we have here in Isaac is not someone with that same scandal but he is messing everything up and he throws his family into chaos at the end. Isaac, Isaac is declining. But then there is Rebecca. Rebecca is deceptive. Verses 5 through 17 shows that she's got a deceptive plan and she's got deceptive courage. Now she's got a deceptive plan to advance God's will and she's got a deceptive courage to advance, advance God's will. Her objective was entirely right. But she's pursuing it with deception is what she's doing. She's trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. And so look what she does beginning in verse number 6. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed, I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother, saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring... Uh, from there, two choice kids of goats, and I will make savory food from them uh, for your father, such as he loves. Have you noticed how often the word savory is used in the text? That's all Isaac's got on his mind. Then you shall take it in, uh, to, into your father, that he may eat it, that he may bless you before his death. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Look, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth-skinned man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall soon be, uh, sh- shall be seen to be a deceiver to him. And I shall bring a curse on myself and not a blessing. But his mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go get them for me. And that's what happened, and he took the food into his father. Rebekah is deceptive. Now, Isaac has created a crisis in the family. But his kind of family system and his approach to family is such that Rebecca can't go to him directly and say, hey, big boy, you've done messed up. She has to triangulate. She's got to pull her son in on the conflict and send him instead. Triangulation. End up triangulating. Instead of two people dealing with the problem directly, pulling in someone else to do the dirty work. And that's what she does with her son. Now, that's the kind of family system Isaac had created. But this is what Rebecca ends up doing. She ends up deceiving. God's servants on mission with him can deceive and connive in their attempts to do the mission of God. Just because people are advancing the mission of God does not mean they are completely immune from conniving and deceiving. And that's what takes place here in this text. I remember 
uh, on Friday nights, anytime I was in Houston, I would go hear a preacher, an evangelist, a revivalist by the name of Phil Arms. I shouldn't have said his name. Well, it's in the paper. Don't worry about it. But uh, Phil would preach, and I mean, he preached down the stars. And he'd have the best music in Houston come and stand on the platform and, and sing. But then Phil's attempt to take up an offering would last longer than his sermon. And I mean, he would call out every, every Bible verse. He would call out uh, every, uh, uh, every bit of shame. He would accuse people of being selfish and carnal and not trusting God. But if they trusted God, they would give. And, and the offering appeal would take almost as long as a sermon or a sermonette in those scenes. Well, I was a college student. I didn't pay attention. didn't have any money. Didn't matter to me, but my poor grandmother was with me, and she would squirm all the way through. She would bear through those kind of things and put a little something in the uh, plate. So it came as no surprise to me a few years later when the Houston Chronicle exposed some really terrible dealings uh, on the part of uh, Phil Armed Ministries. A great preacher, but he was trying to achieve this in the wrong way. What I wanted to ask him sometime is, and I finally got tired of him and quit going. What I wanted to ask is, we trust God, but do you? You have to do that kind of offering appeal. I've never found it necessary to do that. Uh, I've done four major things with buildings in my ministry and never had to twist anybody's arm. In fact, I will spend, and it's not because I'm a great hero. Other pastors here are the same way. But I've, I've spent more time in prayer than I have appealing for an offering. Okay, That's the key. And God will put it on the heart of his people. Now, it's responsible to talk to folks and encourage them, answer questions, give direction, and uh, the pastor's got to get behind the pulpit and talk about it. I understand that. But as far as laboring in that way, I found it totally unnecessary in four uh, major building projects I've done in my ministry. Rebecca, well, she's deceptive. She's trying to do the right thing in the wrong way. But then there's Jacob. Jacob is duplicitous as well. He's in on it. He's complicit. And uh, he's duplicitous about his identity in verses 18 and 19. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And you imagine the stab of pain and conviction that went through his heart when he lied. I've done just as you told me. Please arise, sit and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. So he's deceptive in his identity. And then look, he does what a lot of religious people do when they're backslidden, not right with God. Oh, I could go on and on and on about this point. Not that I'm not looking at you like you're guilty of it, but I'm sitting there thinking through all the times people have done verse 20 to manipulate me into their opinion. Look what he says. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord your God brought it to me. He gets spiritual to cover up his backsliding, and a lot of people do. It's stunning. Then he's deceptive and duplicitous in his appearance. Verse 21, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near me that I may feel you, my son, whether you're really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, Well, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. Which really makes you wonder about Esau. But uh, anyway, and he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. Well, he's duplicitous then, in his appearance, then his offering to his dad. 
Are you really my son Esau? Again, he keeps penetrating and asking. He's not convinced this is the third time he's done this. He said, I am. He said, bring it near to me and I will eat of my son's game so that my soul may bless him. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him and he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him. So the offering to his father was very duplicitous. And the benefit he received of the blessing in verse 27, 28, and 29 is duplicitous as well. Ladies and gentlemen, from this point on, after the blessing in verse 27, 28, and 29, Jacob will not have another day of undiluted peace. Everything he experiences from then on out has some kind of sorrow in his life. Now, he's blessed, but he has trouble with it every step of the way for the rest of his life. God's servants on mission with him can waffle in integrity and become complicit in schemes. And like the text, this can happen even in families. I want to make something real clear to you. We are to value family. We are to be zealous for one another. We need to be there for each other. Family's a priority, but family is not Lord. Jesus Christ is above family. And we've got to be very, very careful of enthroning family above the Lord. That is never, ever, ever appropriate. And that is precisely what Jacob as a young man has done with his mother. He obeyed the voice of his mother when he should not have. And from this point on, he never has a blessing without some kind of disturbance of his peace. Jesus Christ is Lord. Now thank God, usually family and Jesus don't conflict. Usually they coincide together very well. But listen to me. There will always be at least one major thing that will rise up in every family where Christians in the family have got to make a decision. Is family Lord or is Jesus the Lord? Christ has got to win every time. Um, that's one of the reasons that a nonprofit outfit has removed certification from some Christian ministries. The Evangelical Council on Financial Accountability is a great organization that examines the policies, procedures, organization, and uh, financial uh, procedures of different evangelical uh, Christian organizations, parachurch organizations especially. And if they have uh, high standards and practices uh, regarding their financial dealings and how they are administered and the accountability structures and all, then they give them a certification. And when the uh, Evangelical Council on Financial Accountability, ECFA, speaks, it's really a powerful voice and endorsement. I've seen some people question the media about their financial dealings, and then soon after that, the ECFA will endorse them, and the debate's over. I mean, it's, it's powerful. And so their endorsement's very, very important. Um, for some reason, I think Billy Graham had something to do with its start. But his organization was certified by the ECFA. The ones that I've seen lose their certification from the ECFA, one in particular, there have been several, but one in particular I remember, was one where the board was very small, 
The president, the CEO, and board members were almost entirely family members. And once that was reported to the ECFA, they investigated and they lost their certification, and they should have. They should have. Ladies and gentlemen, what happens here is that Jacob and his family lose certification of God's peace because Jacob is duplicit as his mother is deceptive. Isaac is declining. But then there's Esau. Esau's devastated. He comes in to discovers Jacob's um, deception and finds it out. Look at verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. God's servants on mission with him can become so devastated that they hate and desire to kill. Uh, do, you, do you remember where Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he said, you've heard that it's been said of old, you shall not murder. I say to you, if any of you are angry with his brother to that extent, you'll be guilty of judgment and hellfire. Jesus is speaking not to the pagan Gentile world. Jesus is speaking to disciples. It is entirely possible for the people of God to have hate in their hearts. And Esau's got it in his own heart and life. Now I want to end with three applications here. Number one, if you're a man, walk in obedience. Now, we could say that to any Christian, but I say that because men and their families are the head of their home, and the head ends up controlling the rest of the body. Men have got to obey God and put a premium on obeying Him. Do you remember when Pharaoh wanted to afflict Israel and destroy them, what he did? He went after the males. He sought to destroy them in Exodus chapter 2. Do you remember when Herod wanted to uh, weaken Israel and go after their king? What he did? He went after the males in Matthew 2 in Bethlehem and wiped them out. When Satan wants to weaken a family, when he wants to weaken a church, when he wants to weaken a nation, he will usually first go after the males. Now, that's not to say that women are unimportant. Don't hear me say that. But we are expecting in many families something from women that is simply too much for them to bear by themselves. They were never designed to bear an entire family. There needs to be a dad there who trusts and obeys God. Both of them were designed to shoulder it, to unify together, and the male to do his part, the, one, the, the dad to do his part, the mother to do her part, and together raise a godly generation and give and produce godly offspring, according to Malachi 4. That's what they're to do. The truth is, is that when a man in a family steps outside the will of God, his family usually will as well, and they will suffer for it. And in the distance, I can hear Isaac and Jacob shouting a rowdy amen. However, the scripture teaches and promises that when the man in the family obeys God, great blessing comes to the rest of the family. 
I've done the best I could to memorize Psalms 112 and 128. And on Sunday nights, I put that text before me and I pray for our singles in our church. Single women, they'll marry a guy that fits the profile of that. And single men, that they'll fit the profile of that and be men of God because God promises blessing to a family when the head of the household walks with God and obeys Him. If you're a man, walk in obedience. Second, if you're involved, stay on your guard. No matter how esteemed, no matter how exalted, even if you find yourself on the pages of the Bible, you've got to guard yourself with each passing day. There never comes a moment in life, in life, this side of your own personal funeral service where you can relax and fail to seek God with all your heart. If you're involved, stay on your guard. Proverbs 4.23 and uh, 1 Peter 5.8 are two texts I pray through every morning. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. All the issues of your life are going to be determined and defined by the condition of your heart. Your heart will take you places. Your feet will go where your heart leads you. Your mind will go where your heart leads you. In other words, out of the heart, Jesus said, come forth all sorts, all manner of things, according to Matthew 15. Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. And then 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, which implies some of us can be somewhat intoxicated with foolishness. We, we can be intoxicated with silly thinking by naive and gullible thinking. Be sober. Be vigilant. That means we can be careless. We can be reckless. Be sober. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. You know, that says something about his appetite. Satan's appetite is voracious and he's never satisfied. He never gets to the point Keith Ido got to a number of years ago when he was in Africa uh, and um, he uh, had a, uh, a driver uh, offer to drive him right up next to a rock on top of which uh, lay a lion. He said, would you like to get up close to him? He said, is it safe? He said, of course it is, Mom. And took him up there by it and drove, and uh, the windows were down. And Idol was sitting in this seat, and the lion was right there. And the lion had absolutely no interest in him at all. Do you know why? His face was covered with blood. He'd just eaten. He was satisfied. Satan never gets satisfied. His appetite is ambitious. It is voracious. It is unsatisfied. It is unsatisfiable. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone whom he may devour. If you're involved, please stay on guard. The final thing is, if you're discouraged, walk in hope. Walk and hope. Reminds me of a Chinese paper uh, back a while ago that reported about the wedding of an elderly woman to an elderly man. They got married. She was afraid of getting married when she was younger, so when she got older, she married. She was 107 years old. Hey, there's hope! <laughs> there's hope! 107 years old, and she got married. Finally said yes to somebody. She had hope. Ladies and gentlemen, we have hope, and let me tell you why. I remember uh, reading through Genesis when I was in college. It may have been the first time I'd really read through Genesis. And I remember being discouraged and, and somewhat upset 
at all the sin on the pages of the Bible. Now, I expected it in the garden in Genesis 3, and I expected it in Genesis 6 with the flood, and I expected it in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. I was kind of surprised about Noah and his drunkenness. That bothered me. Uh, you know, I'm a young Christian, didn't know all of this. But then I get to all of these people that I had heard were heroes, and I come to Abraham, and there are three outrageous, spectacular sins in his life. And then we get to Isaac, and he pulls this. And Jacob, who could stand him? I wouldn't let my daughters date that joker. Okay? And then Jacob's sons and what they do to Joseph. And what's worse, is, what's almost as bad as Joseph is naive and gullible. And, and I, you know, I felt the sense that the biblical text was trying to create. And you know what? You get that not only in Genesis, but you get that in Exodus. Moses provides great leadership, and then he sins in such a way God won't let him in the promised land. In Israel, constant sin. And then who can stand to read about all the kings and their six books of the Bible dedicated to it? Saul alone has 23 instances of disobedience to God. 23. Ladies and gentlemen, you get the sense in the scripture, please, would somebody get it right? Even David doesn't get it right. You know, and every time his name is mentioned, Bathsheba's right there with him. And he's still a man after God's own heart, but no one can let the poor man forget it. And yet... Despite all of that, Jesus still makes it to the earth, still goes to the cross, dies, rises again, and promises a return that has been incrementally coming and will burst on the scene visibly, gloriously, physically, literally when he returns. It's going to work. It's going to happen. You see, God's will is ultimately done. Now, whether it's personally done, I don't know or not. That's up to us. But God will finally get his way. Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. If you're discouraged, start walking in hope. You've got good reason to. And Father, we thank you that there is abundant and abounding hope in the Lord Jesus.